Podcast. I'm this week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me are my co-hosts, Matthew Dawkins. Sounding a little hoarse today, Eddie. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. And Neil Ann Price. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Good morning. We're doing these a little bit differently today. Um, part of the reason why I do sounds uh, a touch hoarse is because I am up very, very early in the morning to, to help out both of my, my, my colleagues here. Um, and we're, we're swapping out Stixie for Neil today because... Um, this month we are kind of celebrating the world of darkness and um, Matthew's already done some great episodes uh, with the mage 20th anniversary developers. And so I thought it would be a good time to kind of talk about V20 as a whole um, because all of us were, were involved in that, but particularly Beckett's Jihad diary. Cause it was, it was a nice little intersection of what not only v20 ended on but also really what it was trying to do and how it differs from both previous editions and and the fifth edition now so let's start talking about beckett specifically i think and then we can wander around and talk about other stuff as it kind of comes up well i have to applaud you eddie as you have tried to lead us straight into the topic I know, I know, I try so hard. <laughs> yeah, that that well, that genuinely impressed me that we aren't even at the two minute mark, and you started. You were about to start asking questions, <laughs> but you screwed it up. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. We may still get there. We're not at two minutes yet, but I do just want to say thank you very much, Neil, for coming on. Uh, you're a hero to the Welsh, and that means a lot. And yeah, pleased to have you here. <laughs> um. I, I do appreciate that, uh, and I, I would say so in Welsh if I actually spoke the language, which I do not. Well, we're at the um, two-minute mark now, so you can stop all that. Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> no fun, no fun, no fun. <laughs> One thing, uh, I, I was digging up documentation before uh, this episode, because I have email that goes on forever, uh, and I was a little surprised, a little taken aback, that um, the first email documentation I have a discussion is 2014. But I remember, if I remember correctly, Neil, you and I had to talk about this at Gen Con, right? Kind of how this all started. Yeah, yeah, I, we have before. And um, when we talked about this, um, the initial idea, and I had to, I had to refresh my memory on this, uh, was a lot of the stuff that came later didn't happen. It was just, we're going to do a book about Metaplot because one of the things that uh, I remember as we worked on V20 as a whole is that a lot of people talked about how they they loved and missed the Metaplot and, and the nature of the V20 line was that it was, as I called it at the time, Metaplot agnostic. You could set it at any point in time during the vampire continuity and, and, and the rules would more or less work. Um. And so we tried to set up a, a status quo that didn't really imply a certain setting, but over the time, a setting kind of emerged. You know, a, a, there, there was certainly a kind of, here's what's going on. And so people wanted to kind of dig into that and also us to reference some of the meta plot stuff, but it couldn't be a situation where things were moving forward. So I remember you and I talked because I know you were hugely passionate about what I had taken to calling it as the mythology of Family it, Masquerade. It, it's true. And I want to draw a distinction between um, metaplot and mythology uh, for a moment to, to get a little technical about it. Um, I'd spent a lot of time thinking about the time period and the development around uh, 
the end of the world of darkness in 2004 and the beginning of the new world of darkness at the time it was when i for really was really first starting to get seriously interested in game design and make the leap from uh writer to designer and i was starting to really question why things worked so i paid very close attention to a lot of the development and a lot of the structure of the early new world of darkness books and um you know, to to get candid for the first time of many, likely in this interview, mm-hmm. um, I definitely saw an allergy to to Metaplot. Um, mm-hmm. Metaplot had was was very divisive at the end of uh, New World Dar- or, or end of the first World of Darkness, and I, I know that a lot of the designers going into the New World of Darkness wanted nothing to do with Metaplot, no Metaplot whatsoever. But that also meant that they threw a lot of babies out with the bathwater because a part of what engrossed people a lot about um about vampire and about the world of darkness was this rich history this huge tapestry the idea that you were part of a much larger world and the new world of darkness games really didn't embrace that they chose a much more personal feel of it uh and it wasn't until much later in the line that they found the balance but they started moving away from it and finally i think uh, moved away from it entirely with Requiem for Rome, which set down, yeah, this is actually definitive history in there. And then you had Dark Eras, and you had you had other things coming in that that really fleshed out the mythology of it. Not Metaplot, um, but it did assume that there was a living world. Right. Uh, one of the, one of the last New World of Darkness things that I I find interesting was that um, City of Damn New Orleans came out uh, a couple months before Hurricane Katrina kind of reshaped. New Orleans. And um, I know books were at first reticent to even mention it, but over time, you know, mentions of, of Katrina's effect on it uh, came came in. And, and we have to remember that this is a living world, uh, even if the characters themselves are unliving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, going back to much earlier editions, how uh, Berlin by Night um, the you know it was written like right around the time the wall was coming down um so it was still very much an east berlin west berlin dynamic but within a couple of years that book looked dated because the real world had changed so much in that short period of time um and and like you said new orleans by night is the same so um when we're putting together a property that's calling back to continuity it's 10 15 20 years old at that point um it, it, we we had the kind of thing where there's some points where we kind of just had to either ignore it or move on um, or kind of address it. Like, so one of the things I remember you and I talked early on was that we weren't going to touch the Quijin at all because it was like, there's just no way to realistically salvage that without doing a lot while well, making a book about them. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, kind of, again, kind of going back through and I'm reading this email probably the first time in, in many, many years. Uh, and I think, I think it's a, th- a trend you'll see is that this is going to be a lot of the how the memory cheats. Um, but uh, a lot of people have talked about how Beckett's Jihad Diaries is fantastic, not only a capstone to the V20 line, uh, but also kind of a bridge book to uh, Vampire 5th Edition. Um, but in this, this email I wrote to you and to... Um, uh, Matt McElroy and to Rich Thomas kind of talking about how we were going to move ahead. But this is before the outline was even written. Um, 
I talk about how I copied Richin because this is really charting a subtly new course for the V20 line. I want to make sure he's okay with the directions we're going in. Um, so at that early stage, this I, this was not necessarily the end of the line. This was going to be a new take on the line. And that didn't happen for a lot of reasons. Um, but it ended up, I think, being good because I know one thing you were very passionate about Neo. And actually, for Jessica's perspective, Neo and I were co-developers on Beckett's initially. Um, we had uh, Matt McElroy as a consulting developer. Uh, so originally, it was going to be Neo and I working on this book. So that's why Matthew hasn't been chiming in yet, because Matthew comes into, into our, our drama at a later point. Yeah, I've been very polite. Well, which, is, which is rare and unusual. I'll make sure people aren't worried about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, uh, as my printer goes off in the background, um, uh, one of the things that we also wanted to do was um, incorporate flavor and detail from all versions of Masquerade. So it, it again, going to, to Neil's point, make it more of a, a mythology and then talking about how that, that rich texture was there. Um, it, it wasn't just, okay, how, here's what we got from Revised Now. Let's talk about Dark Age. Let's talk about Victorian Ages. Let's talk about the clan novels. Let's talk about Vitesse. Let's talk about Bloodlines, the video game, where we're able to um, for Activision purposes. Um, so when we first started, I don't know how much do you remember, Neil. Do you remember how any of our discussions about kind of where we decided what was going to be stuff we focused on versus stuff that we decided that we weren't going to touch? Do you remember any of that? I believe that uh, with some of the early writers on the book, which uh, Matthew was one, um, I kind of sat down and 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 used them as a sounding board. And together, the group produced a sort of definitive list of these are the storylines that were present in Vampire Revised, at least, and a little bit of second edition. Um, and these are the relevant books for those. And from there, we decided what the disposition of each of those was going to be. And that eventually turned into the chapter format of Beckett's. Right. That's my recollection as well. Uh, It was a team effort. Um, So I remember uh, I'm, you know, I I often act as the vampire encyclopedia. And so when it came as the... Uh, came up to coming up with what books we were going to refer to, which meta plot beats. I was able to just build up a big stack of books next to me and pull out various meta plot things and know exactly where to reference them. And by the end, we had a pretty large document of minor and major meta plot beats. Everything from the Week of Nightmares, which is of course a pretty major element of Vampire Revised, through to the more minor stuff like the False Cane in Berlin by Night, uh, or you know, or, or some of the minor elements of something like Milwaukee by Night, which uh, I think only ended up as the first chapter because it was my favorite city source book. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, but, you know, it, it just, it was, it was a neutral place to, to start things off really just, you know, with one of the capsule city source books and kind of sprawl out from there. Well, it, it was neutral for the writers, um, mm. but I, I do want to talk a little bit about the development behind the scenes. Um, and we're going to – the week of nightmares gives me a nice segue into the first of several Neil and Eddie have a fight and end up coming <laughs> up with a creative, a creatively better solution than either of us had demanded at start. 
um, in on this book, and there there are several. Um, so one of the plot threads that I really wanted to cover was um, the weak nightmares and Baba Yaga. Mm-hmm. Um, and Baba Yaga, for those who don't remember, um, uh, uh, was was unceremoniously killed off in To Grandmother's House We Go, which is the the adventure. Um, that's in um, one of the one of the week of nightmares metaplot books, Knights of Prophecy, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the adventure literally takes place on a railroad, um, and it, it is quite a railroad. And Baba Yaga just unceremoniously dies. Now she had been a huge presence in the werewolf books right. as as an antagonist, mm-hmm. and I remember I wanted to at least address the werewolf reaction, and he was like, "No, this is a vampire book." We shouldn't do that. And then I was like, but it's BS that they didn't, they didn't, you know, get a shot at her after all this, after all that buildup in Rage Across Russia. Um, and so we, we, we hashed out um, as professionals do. Mm-hmm. And uh, the solution we came up with, with, you know, Beckett stumbling across these werewolf uh, markings and these werewolf um, dialogue gave us an opportunity to also get more into Beckett as a character and examine the gangrel's relationship to uh, the lupines right. slash guru. Yes. Um, so it, it ended up better than either of us had thought at first. No, you're right. Cause I, I remember, I, I think it was something that the writer pitched at that stage. Um, and I was like, yes, no, that that's a really cool thing. Um, and, and I think uh, another thing that both of us struggled with, uh, Heroes of Creative Fights was how omnipotent, I guess, Beckett was. Um, because he's such a smart character and he's so fun to write. It's so easy to just feed him the quote unquote truth. And something that uh, uh, we both on different sides of this struggled with was making sure Beckett made room for some of the other signature characters and, and making sure that Beckett didn't have all of the answers. But where he fell down and where he made that space. I know sometimes you and I kind of disagreed on. Um, and in particular, um, one place where we agreed that Beckett should have kind of a blind spot was in regards to his ghoul, uh, Cesare. We kind of wanted a Jeeves and Wooster-ish relationship between the two, um, but we didn't want Cesare to be smarter than Beckett. I mean, Beckett still needs to be kind of in charge and focus of the book, um, but we wanted to kind of imply that Cesare was doing stuff or um, had a grasp, a better grasp on things than perhaps Beckett entirely realized. But since we're doing it from Beckett's perspective, there was a challenge of like how much of this becomes fanfic about Beckett and Cesare. And you and I were very excited about this. And I remember our writers got very excited about this. And then we got a bunch of drafts in and it became exactly the thing we were afraid it was going to become, <laughs> which was a lot of Cesare fanfic. Yeah, the book book was too funny, and Cesare was so put upon mm-hmm. and so beleaguered and so rolling his eyes. And it, sometimes, sometimes you want the the text as subtext. Sometimes you want. Uh, I know that's cowardly, uh, Matthew. <laughs> well, it is. Um, <laughs> uh, sometimes you want to have a subtle touch with that, and we really wanted the idea that Cesare is actually a lot smarter than anyone thinks he is to be a subtle thing. Mm-hmm. I recall uh, when writing, and uh, this isn't to big me up or anything like that, that uh, in contrast to a lot of those drafts that did have Beckett and Cesare sort of wacky hijinks, mine were very dry. And that's not to say they were better. Uh, I I was very anti-humor 
in in my work and so it missed a lot of the well it, it didn't make Beckett as interesting a protagonist quite frankly it basically became about everything going on around Beckett rather than Beckett's interaction with it where what what the humorous drafts had done more humorous I should say um mm. was actually make Beckett interesting and integral sometimes to the detriment of the chapter because it fell into the hole that Metaplot sometimes does, which is, well, this is all about this interesting NPC rather than what your characters, your player characters can do. So we had to find a balance uh, through red lines and finals and ultimately development where there was enough to keep you interested in Beckett as a protagonist and, of course, his supporting cast of Lucita, Oculos, etc., uh, but there also had to be enough hooks in there that players and storytellers would be able to read a chapter, and even if they didn't care for this wily gangrel, they would think, well, you know, that that was an interesting artifact, or, uh, oh, I never considered that you could approach this particular metaplot beat like this. I can now incorporate it into my story. So, yeah, there was... Right. a. Uh, it, it was difficult because it was a large book to begin with, and it obviously became larger, as we know, and no doubt we'll get on to. But finding that consistency of both in-character voice for someone like Beckett, because he's he is present throughout, so you need the authors to sing from the same hymn sheets or basically do a lot of work in development, which is ultimately what we did, uh, to make Beckett sound the same throughout the entire book. And uh, you need to make it consistent in tone, which is where that humour side, sometimes what became erotic fanfic in a few cases, um, you know, where was that appropriate? Where wasn't it? It turned out it was in the Dracula chapter. And yeah, the tone the tone we eventually settled on for Beckett himself was one of somewhat dry but still wry self amusement, mm-hmm. um, which is something I, I I really I really felt in the character because I often say things just purely to amuse myself and much to the chagrin of those around me. <laughs> um, so we so we wanted to hew the character a lot to how he sounded in Bloodlines, yes. um, and. Uh, that was a lot of people's exposure to Beckett, and that was certainly one of the better, like one-off depictions of the character and how we wanted this book to come off. He drops in, he says something wry and self-referential, and feeds your characters a little bit of knowledge, and then he gets the hell out of town. Yeah, I remember actually um, because at this point in time, I had just gotten off of, I just got let go by uh, CCP, so I was working as a freelancer on this project, but um, during my time at CCP. When we were working on the World Darkness MMO, um, we got really good at pulling out the guts of Bloodlines because we were using it so much as reference for what we're making for that game. And so I remember Neo mentioned, I really want to base it off the Bloodlines presentation. I was like, oh, I know where all the audio files for the lines live in the code. Um, And so I was able to kind of dig through and extract all of his audio files and dump them into a folder for the writers and say, here's a whole bunch of his audios. Listen to this to get a sense of what his voice is like, which is a really unique opportunity in writing books like this. You don't often, when you're writing on this kind of voice, have such a strong example to draw from. Yeah, uh, I, I felt Beckett as a character. So, uh, uh, confession here, you know, this wasn't. This was, I guess, one of my first development projects in the end when I came on as a co-developer. Mm-hmm. And... So, 
one of my first major writing projects, and I didn't actually follow the instruction of listening to the audio files because I was <laughs> uh, I was arrogant enough to think, well, I know how vampire should sound, and you know, I'd like to think I'm a little wiser now. Um, but the way I always pictured Beckett and the way I guess I, I wrote his voice was, this is a character with four to five intelligence, probably about four wits, two perception, maybe one perception. Mm. He, he is often incredibly self-confident, uh, but he is often blindsided, because, often by his allies as much as by enemies. But it basically allowed myself, and I think the other writers did it as well, excellently, it allowed Beckett to often end up in elaborately dangerous situations, James Bond style, where he is basically walking into a domain, he sort of pops his cuffs, and he says, uh, Hi, I'm Beckett, Gangrel Beckett, at which point someone <laughs> says, I re- remember his name, let's put him in this trap, explain our horrible plan to him, and then he can escape in some ingenious way. And it means you get a you know a nice narrative that allows you to explore the city while Beckett's temporarily in peril. Uh, he mm. understands what the person's talking about because it wouldn't be very interesting if your narrator was just thick-headed Mm-hmm. But but he often can't see the wood for the trees, which I guess you could say is his problem when it comes to nodism, Kane, and the entire sort of raison d'etre for for him in Vampire the Masquerade. He's never going to believe everything, but that's part of what makes him appealing. Right. And um, you mentioned something actually I did, did want to kind of touch on. Uh, there was actually a change of developer during the course of this. Um, and I don't know if I remember why that was, Neil. I, was it because, Neil, you were going to kick, you start working on the Scion line? Was that why you did the change? I had already been working on the Scion line, and I was uh, several several feet underwater. Okay. And Matthew came along to bail me out. Um, but Matthew was someone I was leaning on already as, um, we don't really have a lead writer, uh, role for the, for these mm-hmm. books, but if we did, it would have been Matthew. I, I have a very, very strong knowledge of Vampire the Masquerade and Vampire the Masquerade metaplot and Matthew's far exceeded my own, um, to the point where it was very enjoyable. We would be riffing off something, um, that came out yeah, of the Diablery yeah. books, some of the very first books were released for first edition, and people would be like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Well, yeah, those those are the diamonds. Those are the diamonds in the book, in my view. And maybe that's just because you and I are such diehard fans of that, you know, that 10 plus years of vampire metaplot that we can identify these Easter eggs that are mm-hmm. littered throughout the book, and we can think, oh, okay. And I, I've said several times i think there's a benefit to making your readers feel smart uh when when they're reading a role-playing game or any book quite frankly a murder mystery as well when you can when the reader can put two and two together and whether it's something that they have worked out based on their memory or through deduction of clues or what have you uh or or in a vocal styling it's something i experimented a lot with in this book with some characters using saying things like old boy a lot uh i think Mm. i've got tally saying that and i created that for this book because i wanted 
something that made him stand out. But it means that when the reader is reading it, three chapters on, eight chapters on, and a character in the shadow signs off with, uh, well, do take care, old boy. If they've been reading it, you know, quite closely, they'll recognize, oh, okay, that's that's Tally. But but yeah, right. to to go back to Neil's point, you know, I'm incredibly, I am incredibly grateful that I was brought on as co-developer of Beckett's Jihad Diary because I was enjoying this project so much as a writer, and I, I don't think I was rude or crude about it. But as a writer, I think I did uh, take that, I guess, pseudo lead writer seat. But it was because I, I I did possess all that knowledge. There was I, there was a value to having me doing that that many chapters or giving that much guidance to other writers who didn't know things. So it felt. No, oh, sorry, you carry on. As I recall. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I apologize. Oh, I, know. I, 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 I ramble on until people interrupt, Neil, so you go for go- it. <laughs> <laughs> As I recall, you weren't rude and crude at all in the lead <laughs> writer position. However, when you told me you were becoming a developer, we, we, we were going out for pancakes, and you slapped me on the back and said something to the lines of, well, we all knew this would happen. I'm, I'm taking over on the book. You'll find your papers back at your hotel room. Don't don't come to work tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, I'm gonna. And I was like, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to write to Eddie about this. And you're like, No, Eddie's already made the decision. And I was like, What? What? I mean, I'm sure it didn't happen like that. Although we have it been didn't out quite for pancakes. I re- I remember the pancakes. <laughs> the pancakes were delightful. That's true. Was was that uh, mid, uh, midwinter? No, no. Well, Neil and I have been out for pancakes a few times. No. Uh, this isn't a euphemism for something else, by the way. Okay. <laughs> <This is> in... <laughs> pancakes, eh? Yes. And this was this was uh, one of the many pancake houses okay. in uh, London, England. Mm. I was I was visiting him. That, that's probably why I don't remember this, because I was like, I, I, I think I've remembered this shit talking. But an no, ocean no, away. Not there. Uh. Yes. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's it's... Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking through kind of the initial writer list now, and, and it's kind of a who's who. I mean, of, of people who are now staples of ours, um, like, you know, like particularly uh, Joshua Teach and uh, Steffi Devan pop out. I did not realize Steffi had started working with us way back then, even. Yeah, I think uh, Steffi started on the same book I did. If memory serves, we both started, uh, well, not, not on the exact same book, we both started on Vampire. If I recall, and if Steffi listens to this, she can feel free to correct me. And if not, my word goes. I think we both started on Vampire with uh, True Black Hand, uh, which, in fact, mm-hmm. I think, Neil, that may have been your first vampire book, uh, unless I'm very much mistaken. I am not sure if that was my very first one. I think it might have been my 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 second or my third, but it it was a, it was a weird thing anyway because i i, I wrote mm. enoch and i just had to kind of make the whole thing up so that was a fun very fun book and that was coming out at the same time that right. i was getting on to wraith so i got to to tie those two together a little and that was something that was interesting because when i first started working on uh v20 um i was very much feeling like it's all been told before so a lot of the work i did was because it was an anniversary edition right um it was i wanted to touch on parts of the masquerades property that don't get talked about much you know bloodlines v test card game so on and so forth 
in other places where like I wanted to undo or revise things so that way there's just more playable options because it's, if, if it's going to be metal agnostic, you know, like I have to shove the Marina Tribune in here somewhere, you know, so they have a space. Um, but I had this strong impression the first year or so, like there's just not much more to say. I was like, I feel like it's all been said before. And then um, when we started digging into books like Tamahira and this one, um, I, I started learning that there's actually whole chunks of it that just never really got detailed. Like you mentioned, Enoch was just kind of vague references. There's never like, here's where the library is in Enoch. Here's where you find the bathrooms, you know, in Enoch. This is this is just a random plug for for this, but Malcolm Shepard has a blog where he details a lot of the logistics we, we, we oh. came up with going into how Enoch works. And so when we say it has this exact population you know, people are like, that's too many to support a vampire or that's too little to support vampires. They're like, no, we did the math. This, nice. this is how it works. Nice. Um. <laughs> um, and, but then also like, like uh, you mentioned earlier is that uh, the voice of these characters, like so, uh, some of these characters, we had either the Balance uh, video game or the clan novels to kind of lean back on. So, okay, let's, let's kind of pick one of these uh, to reference. And, and Beckett also did show up in the clan novels, for example. But I think Neil's point was, the more iconic interpretation was probably the video game. So that's why we went with that. Uh, but there's sometimes we had choices of what we do, but there's also like some characters who've never had a line, right? And so, okay, what do they sound like when we have to invent that? And there were places where there was a gap in one continuity, but a fix or a reference in another, and we can kind of combine those. And I remember Neil and I talked, and, and actually with the writing team as well, we talked about things like um, the Thin Bloods in Santa Monica because that was a nice big subplot of bloodlines, but never mentioned anywhere else. And so it's like, yeah, we can put these in here, but Activision at that time owns the rights to all of the characters. So we couldn't actually mention character names that were not previously mentioned in a Vampire the Masquerade book. Which which led to a, a second Neil and Eddie fight uh, after, after the fact, because we, Matthew and I definitely wanted to, to, shoehorn in mm -hmm. as much bloodlines references as we possibly could since that was one of the strongest media uh ties to vampire that a lot of folks had kind of come in on and continued to bring folks into this property that had kind of lain dormant until v until v20 revived it uh more than a decade later um and it was it was interesting because uh the paradox purchase happened in the middle of the development of beckett and in the middle of writing of beckett and uh, very shortly after the paradox uh, purchase occurred, um, Eddie Eddie left the development of Beckett's, but stayed stayed with Onyx Path. And then um, the white the new White Wolf that was formed by Paradox uh, enthusiastically tweeted out that they had reclaimed all of the characters from Activision and had cut a deal, right. and they are now solely owned by White Wolf. And I was like, great, that means we can totally put it in there. Um, <laughs> and uh, the answer right. was still no. Uh, for various reasons, but Eddie, um, you know, this, this is actually a, a, a good professional story between you and me. Um, you, you came up to me and you're like, Hey, this is my interpretation of events that you kind of went behind my back on right. this. And I was like, no, 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 Eddie, it, it was not like that. Um, and it was, it, it, it still sticks in me yeah. as a, as a very nice moment between professionals. No, totally. Um, where we because, uh, uh, that's something I don't think we talk about enough was, um, so, so a bit of backstory. Uh, when I was laid off from CCP, this was in May or April. No, it was April of, 20, of 2014 because it was on my anniversary, right? I remember now. 
Um, so my wedding anniversary, my wife and I get laid off from CCP and uh, almost immediately I get a freelance contract to act as a consultant for CCP. And at the time, their logic is, well, we've laid off everyone who worked, who've ever worked in the tabletop role-playing games and we need someone who can tell when we're approving stuff what this stuff actually means. And I remember at the time I was like, I am also working for Onyx Path. I'm going to be biased on this. And it's like, that's fine as long as we have you, to, you know, we have a certain connection with you so we can make sure that we have use of your expertise. Yeah, particularly the legal departments mainly, um, but also some of the creative heads. I was like, okay, well, great. But it did put me in some awkward positions where I knew some information that I couldn't tell other people. And one of those was that um, I was heavily involved with the legal team when Paradox was buying the property, and I could not tell anyone about it, not even Rich. So when stuff like this came out, I was in the awkward position where uh, I couldn't say anything, but my colleagues are smart. And when I'm suddenly clamming up, but also very clearly still heavily involved in these properties, um, some of them took their initiative. It's like, okay, well, Eddie can't answer this question anymore, so I'm going to go ahead and take the initiative. Uh, not realizing that that period expired at a certain point in time when the actual deal was closed. Um, so I, I think it was a case of like some people got in the habit of, okay, well, I'll just go directly to Paradox. Or I'll go directly to these people and, and just figure shit out. Um, and so there's a point where I was feeling left out of the loop. And again, we had a, a, a very professional conversation because I was able to lay out, okay, listen, here's where things are right now. I didn't necessarily articulate to you that things had changed. So that's on me. And Neil's okay. I could see where you came back impression. You know, it was a very nice professional conversation of how we can resolve these things, but things were changing so fast at that stage during the development of this book that, there were points where I would have to, like, part of the reason why I had to pull out of this was because, like, I couldn't be heavily involved in this because I couldn't give creative direction because I knew legal things that would impact this book. So there was a lot of that stuff going on. And on top of that, you know, at one point in time, Onyx Path was pitching for doing a new edition of Vampire the Masquerade. And so there was an initial, there was a phase where this might lead into that book and think things would change. Then it was the, okay, well, we're not doing any more V20 books, so this is going to be the last book. So let's kind of adjust things a little bit so this becomes the capstone. So the stuff that we talked, you know, I talked about at the beginning, when Matthew inherited the book, we were already getting some pretty strong different directions on where this book needed to go. And so Matthew was kind of in the unenviable task of either getting material pushed in a certain direction or just flat out rewriting it himself. Am, am, I, am I remember that correctly, Matthew? Was that kind of where you were at? Yeah, uh, I think it's fair to say Beckett's Jihad Diary had a very heavy development phase. And it mm. wasn't a reflection on the writing quality of people that uh, had turned in their drafts. While, while there's always some development that's needed, as I mentioned, for things like consistency of tone, uh, in this case, there was, I guess the, the easiest word, best word to use would be refinement. The, the book needed mm. to be refined before it could basically be released or put on kickstarter or what have you and uh yeah it was it was heavy work because there was a lot of cross-checking in terms of facts uh you had given that it was also a history book you had to make sure all of the first edition second edition revised edition sources were actually correct uh but there was also we didn't have too many directives from Paradox in terms of what we could or couldn't include. There were some things eventually they asked us to include that we we added right. on very much at the tail end of of development. Uh, but yeah, the um, 
I remember because at the time I I had a full time job outside of the RPG industry, as most freelancers do, and mm-hmm. so I was working yeah. my full days in that, and then every single evening I was doing something extra with Beckett's Jihad Diary. So regard, yeah, regardless of um, the amount of work that it took, Neil and I both turned around, if I do say so, on our behalf pretty damn quickly for a book of its this book's scope and i think that's largely down to our enthusiasm for the subject matter you know it, it sounds bad but if this had been a book that was was a lot more dry uh was a subject that didn't interest us so much but that we weren't so invested in uh having all of those changes going on in the background saying you can include this now you can't now we need you to add this now we need you to remove that could have been pretty damn morale draining uh but we we took it that you know there were some times we took that kind of thing with a bit of a sigh and then go back to the keyboard but a lot of the time we just thought okay we get to play around with this manuscript again and it's it's a good manuscript so it's actually quite a lot of fun to do and some of that came out of beckett's the um some of the the developers of white wolf uh, before it was folded back into Paradox, um, candidly admitted to me that they had thought that some of the ideas in Beckett's were were better than the ones they were coming up with. So they just mm-hmm. folded them into the meta plot. So Beckett's started as another book for V20, possibly the last book, and then kind of officially became the capstone for V20, and then became an, a sly lead-in to Vampire 4th Edition. And then once uh, Paradox uh, bought the property and V5 was announced, it uh, became, again, the capstone V20 book, and then it became a sly lead-in to V5 in certain ways, but not entirely. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it got very complex very quickly, and it and it went back and forth a lot of times. The the major things uh, we were told at Onyx Path that we needed to add to Beckett's Jihad Diary in teaser fashion was references to Beckoning and Second Inquisition, because of course those are two large plot beats in V five, and we did that at the tail end, which is why they don't appear throughout the book. In fact, we weren't uh, we were asked to specifically not add them throughout. They were just to be referenced near the end. So that's where they are. And I had the good fortune of being able to work on several of the V5 books uh, and, you know, some of the other V5 products to the board games and such. And mm. it's largely down to my love of Beckett's Jihad Diary because I do think it is a fantastic vampire book. It's a, it's a fantastic role-playing game book or book in general. And I'm not just saying that as a co-developer of it, I think it stands up. I would, whenever developing a book, whether it was Chicago Cults of the Blood Gods or working on chapters or heritage or anything like that, I would go to Beckett's Jihad Diary if there was something I wanted to, some linkage I wanted to create. Mm-hmm between the previous edition and this one if i uh, and again it's because i know there are a lot of long-term fans who like to feel rewarded for sticking with a line that yeah. yes it's absolutely fine to add new meta plot you definitely should you should definitely add new story hooks that are completely independent of everything that's gone before because there's lots of new role players but you need to keep in mind the established fan base as well 
which is why characters... Uh, so a character who pretty much appeared large in Beckett's, like Tally, appears in Chicago by night, which may have been an incongruous placing for a character like that, but mm-hmm. felt it made sense to me as the developer because he was a big part of Beckett's Jihad Diary. And that's why he appears in example text in the V5 core book, in fact, uh, along with other characters that appear in Beckett's. It's... um. I think it's it's again fair to say that most of the uh, most of the Beckett's Jihad Diary plot elements that have subsequently appeared in V five in its various products have appeared there because I put them there, and that may mm-hmm. that that sounds like me puffing out my chest and saying, well, they wouldn't have appeared there if I wasn't on those books, but I think it it's true because there's been a lot of different creative minds on V5, and they're all pulling from different places. Some people are just dedicated to putting in brand new ideas, and that's fantastic. Some people are looking to Paradox, and they're saying, I want some ideas, I want some firm direction, and that's where they get theirs from. And in my case, which I think is natural, I look back to books I've already worked on, and I think, well, I want some continuity, and I also want to... And if this was a really good plot, I don't want to abandon it. I want to expand it or provide more opportunities to access it. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm I'm pleased to have been able to do that because I want Beckett's Jihad Diary to remain memorable even as V5 trundles on into the distance. And it's interesting um, how... Because this is not... It's not a property with one specific creative vision, right? Like everyone fades in and out of working on it and they add their pieces and they move on. And so it, it's a lot like a long running uh, a comic book or a television show where different creative teams come in and they add to what came before and, and sometimes recontextualize came before. And it's interesting. This is a pretty good kind of slice into that because um, – when I worked on the World Wars MMO, for example, uh, we don't talk a lot about this. Uh, originally, it was going to be kind of its own continuity. It was going to be a reboot in a lot of ways, and it was going to kind of blend together Requiem and Masquerade. And at some point in time, uh, that shifted to it was going to be a Masquerade game, and it was going to be, if not a literal successor to Bloodlines, it was going to be a spiritual successor to Bloodlines. And so there was a point where we had to kind of retcon the uh, mechanics they were going for into how Masquerade worked. Uh, and, and in particular, uh, when because this is when I was coming on board, I, the big question I had was, so w- what happened with Guiana? Because it's the literal end of the tabletop role-playing game line, and now we're just not going to talk about it? Uh, and the argument made, which was valid, was people coming in fresh, especially if they're coming in for bloodlines, have no clue what this kind of thing is, and it really shouldn't be a big focus of it. Um, so when the MMO got scrapped, one of the things we established in the MMO design was that there was a false Gehenna in 2004. The idea that Gehenna came and stuff happens, but it wasn't the world-ending event that everyone thought it was going to be. It just, things changed. And that was going to be the large metaphor for, and that's why things work differently here. It's because Ganna came along and fucked shit up, and now we're here. Uh, and so the long-term fans had an explanation, no matter how hand-wavy it was, and new people who didn't care didn't have to engage with it. So I took that piece, and that was part of the core of the pitch for 
Beckett Jihad diary was Beckett going, okay, so what actually happened in 2004? And it was a good way to kind of explain, and here's where we are now. And again, I could kind of use that as a way to shove under the carpet all the things of A20 had ultimately changed. It was like, okay, well, this weird thing happened in 2004, and we're now in 2014, 10 years later. And so Beckett's like, it's been a decade. We should probably let you figure out what happens. Yeah, it was, like I said, that tension between the, the meta plot and the mythology uh, behind the game of what mm. what 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 occurred in the past and what informs the game's present, but then what is sort of part of the living structure of the game going forward. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned blending Requiem in, into things because uh, a lot of us... Uh, before we worked on the the, the the 20th anniversary lines, worked on the right. New World of Darkness, which became the Chronicles of Darkness um, later on. And we did a lot of really excellent creative work on those that got fed into the the um, the, the, the 20th anniversary lines because of mm-hmm. our work on similar properties beforehand. And uh, you can see that a lot in V5, many, many, many of the subsystems and many of the focuses that were in Vampire the Requiem 2nd Edition and some of the later books of 1st Edition pop back up in V5 because, you know, I think it's worth noting that the original intent of the New World of Darkness was to kind of go back to basics and go back to 1st Edition, but do it do it in a way, um, I think it was I think it was Justin Achille who said this at the time, and it's always stuck with me, that uh, Vampire the Requiem is how we would have written Vampire the Masquerade if we knew then what we do now. Um, and you know, th- things move on from that. But it, it is interesting to me that, like, uh, again, like Matthew talked about the, this kind of continuity and connection was that originally this book was designed for one thing, and so I pulled in elements to sort of explain a specific moment. Because again, in my out in, in the outline, uh, you actually copy and paste the email I sent to you, where I basically said that the only way to reconcile V twenty with the previous continuity is to accept that V twenty is a slightly different alternate reality. Because it just doesn't work unless you say, okay, this is just a parallel thing that happens to look really a lot like the games used to play. And then because of those pieces and because of Matthew's work on, like, say, Chicago, because if you look at the Chicago material in Beckett's and then Chicago by Night, there's a very clear lineage between those. It's, it's very obvious where Matthew's yeah. initial ideas from Chicago from. I mean, it, it will be interesting. It will be interesting to see how, as V5 goes on uh, and different developers take the helm. How much of it is linked to V20 and how much of it is linked to Revised Edition? Uh, There's something we chatted about briefly before we started recording, but you know, there are some people that are coming in to work on V5, and this isn't a fault of theirs at all. Uh, They're coming in to work on V5, and their last work on Vampire was on Revised Edition. And you can't expect an author uh, who is often paid, you know, Pretty, you know, and it's not exactly a fortune to work on role playing games to work through an entire V twenty catalog to get up to date on a on metaplot advancements, and yet if their basis of knowledge is in revised, they're of course going to touch on a lot that was in revised. Uh, we heard early on, and I don't know whether it's still going to be the case, but with Bloodlines two, for instance, that it was going to be a game that. I think with some of the demos that it showed off, it may have showed off dementation and you know disciplines that didn't exist in V5, as an example. Mm-hmm. And so the people who were working on it were going to a previous edition. And so 
it, it will be interesting to me because you're right. V20 is kind of out of phase with the other editions, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it that entirely depends. How out of phase it is depends on who is working on the V5 book at the time because you can either cement V20, like I try to do with Chicago by Night, uh, or you can disregard V20, as some people do with their work, and you know it's not hurting anyone's feelings a book's a book and you either use it or you don't we're not coming to your house to burn them and say they're no longer right. relevant um but yeah it's it's interesting the decisions the design decisions people use the references they make and you know or if they choose to ignore books uh, like Beckett's jihad diary uh, where they shouldn't be prescribed to refer to it uh, but yeah, it, it interests me if you know you jump back to Chicago by Night Second Edition, or go to Beckett's Jihad Diary for the most up to date Chicago before doing V Five Chicago by Night. And, and I was I was going to say uh, there's there's an interesting yeah, the... uh, a nomenclature issue that comes as a result of that, um, which I, I got yelled at for at one point um, because uh, there's first edition Vampire Vampire the Masquerade comes out, then uh, second edition comes out within a year. And that second edition was the edition for a long time. Uh, and then there's revised edition, which is the third edition. It is not called third edition, but it's the third edition of the game. Uh, and then V20 happens. And then Paradox puts out Vampire 5th edition. Um, I kind of mentioned this briefly, but at one point in time, Monix Path is going to do a new edition of Vampire Masquerade. We had talked with CCP about doing it, and they were okay with it. And then the Paradox sale happened, and they changed their mind, which is their... Right, we we've announced it. We announced it as we announced edition. it, and I felt very strongly about this because I felt that V twenty was not actually an edition, and it was pointed out to me that it's literally in the title of the book. It is the twentieth anniversary edition. And I'm like, yes, but that is edition in a slightly different sense. Uh, but V twenty was never designed to be the follow up from revised, and then afterwards, you know, the follow up from there. You know, like, like like I said back in the original email, the, the initial intent was if, it, if we do a fourth edition at some point, then this could feed into that. What we learned on B20 can become fourth edition, but fourth edition would be the very clear, okay, this is actually what follows from revised. When uh, the folks at uh, Paradox took over, I remember having a conversation with them. I believe it was at um, Grand Masquerade. I can't swear to that. Um, and I heard it was going to be fifth edition. I was like, why fifth? And I gave that exact argument. And their point was they wanted to validate all of the work that V20 had done to kind of carry the flag through a really rough time. And I was like, that's really cool. And I, and I greatly respect that. But then the, then the, the, the continuity doesn't work. It breaks pretty badly. <laughs> and so we have Beckett's ended up being a way to kind of reconcile all of that. Um, and of course, with Matthew drawing from it, that actually makes things muddier to a degree. Um, because, but it, it, the, the reality is, is that at the end of the day, um, between this and Lore of the Clans, being able to say, okay, just vampires lie, right? Vampires lie about what, they, what happens to them all the time. And so their history is just a muddled mess because vampires are lying to each other for centuries. And we don't actually know what's, how everything really laid out is kind of a good blanket sweetman. And it, it feels very vampire to kind of say, okay, well, that's probably why that all doesn't work because some vampire lied to some vampire 300 years ago, and that's why we think this thing is not actually true. 
but it is weird. What interests me from a development perspective is seeing how the decisions that were made behind the scenes impacted the 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 property on a creative level on a stewardship level um if the the asamites now now the banu hakim um getting you know having their their original clan curse sort of retconned into being a tremere curse and then having that be broken in revised edition um was really just sort of, of of papering over the idea that well you know they people went back and forth on different mm. implementations of the clan curse and what that should be and seeing what things were just directly retconned and never mentioned again or seeing what the, you know someone tried to work it into the story or work the change into the story uh, uh, Malkavians getting dementation instead of dominate for example um, was always really interesting to to me to watch. And um, to touch on something you said earlier, Matthew, about not taking personal feelings from it, um, it, it is hard sometimes, but you have to do it as a professional. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of work. Uh, so, so in case people don't know me, I'm a tremendous Salubri fan, and I always have been. Um, and uh, it's, it's not, I'm not exaggerating when I say um, that outside of the core V20 book, uh, every mention of the salubri in v20 is directly it, it or is. indirectly me um like mm-hmm. pushing someone to write it or or me writing it and uh you know i i did a lot of work in rehabilitating them and reimagining them because i felt like authors never really knew like the best the best things to do with them and i came up with this whole sort of purpose for them and i felt very very good about that and uh, the V5 direction is radically different. As an as a as a new edition is 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 completely allowed to do. As writers are completely allowed to reinvent, they should not be bound to anything that's come become before, per se. Um, but it but it was I you know I'll be candid. It was a little hard. Like no, oh, I did a lot of work, and then that just they you know it's a totally different direction. Um, but that's okay, and that's how vampire works, and that's happened so many times on vampire and what comes back to me thinking about it and looking at beckett's is how much of a time capsule it is not just of everything that came before but of all the things that were changing at that moment yeah uh, i think uh, that that's a really interesting point neil because we obviously take pride in our work uh, well i would hope we all do uh, because you know you want it to the best possible game or game fiction or whatever it is you happen to be writing and for me, I had the exact same thing. I had the exact same feelings, but mine were for the very the myriad forms of the Clan of Death, as we know. A- any reference to I think Cappadocians and Harbingers in V twenty is probably me. Yeah, and I mean. uh, so you know, you you had one eliminated clan, I had the other, and. I don't know whether it's purely this, but I feel sometimes that by virtue of my being fortunate enough to end up working on V5 books, the Hakata, as they became, ended up with such a huge profile. Uh, that that was a Matthew Dawkins decision. That was something I was able to do because I was the developer and so the Cappadocians get to live again in V5. The Harbingers become a main body clan along with the Samdi and everything else. And whereas I fully imagine that if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't been involved in those books, you would have had the Giovanni 
and they probably wouldn't have changed. In fact, I know the direction. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it due to NDAs, but I know what the Giovanni were going to do now that I come to think of it. And it is alluded to in the V5 core, in fact, what would have become of the G- of the Giovanni. Mm. Uh, at least it was the last time I checked it, the text may have been revised. And so it's one of those, again, serendipitous things uh, where by the good fortune of my being able to work on these books into V5, I've been able to keep pushing for those elements I feel most strongly about. But I know full well that if I hadn't been the developer and someone else was the developer and they could have been perfectly competent, more so than me, to do it, those things I love about the game wouldn't have received the spotlight. They, they would have been left as they were in revised edition more likely than not, just as one could argue the Salubri have been. Um, and it's not because Neil's work on the Salubri in V20 was in any way poor. It's excellent. It rehabilitates the clan. It makes them playable and interesting. Mm. And I'm not, not just here to butter you up, Neil, but you, you did a wonderful job with the Salubri, especially in Dark Ages. <laughs> and I think... It's it is just one of those tragic things as as an author that yeah if if you can't just if you can't cling on to the property with your fingernails, uh, or or just have the luck of being hired, I guess on subsequent books, at some point someone else is going to take over, and when they do, they may choose to ignore retcon wipe out do whatever they like with the thing that you love most dearly. But I guess at mm-hmm. some point we all have to let go, don't we? <laughs> exactly it. I mean, um, uh, so I kind of fell into the V20 developer gig because originally it was Justin was going to make V20 uh, edition. I was helping him out. Um, and then Justin went to a different company. And so I was left holding V20. It's like, well, crap, I have to make a book now. Uh um, and Rose was just reminding me on Twitter recently about the very long nights I spent having to write that book. Uh, but then, so it was like, okay, well, you pretty much wrote a large chunk of the book yourself. You know, I had some team, people, it was definitely a team effort, but like, you know, I wrote a large chunk of it myself. And so I kind of kept developing the books. Justin did do a couple of V20 books when he was, his time was freed up. Um, but then I kind of just, again, inherited the line. And when we, I found out that this was going to be the last book, I, I kind of checked back. It's like, I've been doing this for, at that point in time, five years. Uh, and I was just like, I I think I need a break. I mean, I, I've been through two different versions of Vampire the Masquerade between the MO and this. Um, and so I remember when Matthew came on to do Becca's GI Diary, it was very much with a sense of, I didn't think I was going to, it was, it was my last one song. It's like, cool, I'm, I'm, my last bit. I'm happy giving this moving forward, but I was pretty much done with Vampire the Masquerade uh, because I didn't think I could divorce myself from that initially. Right. We talked about the, you, you know, being professional and, and whatnot, but like Neil says, it does hurt sometimes. It's, it sucks that you look at something, you put a lot of, uh, uh, pardon the pun, uh, blood and in, sweat into and uh, going, Oh yeah, but we're just going to scrap all that and do something else. Um, that's not what actually happened, but that's what it feels like certainly. And, and sometimes I was like, ah, well, but, I did this cool thing and I had these ideas for a new edition. Um, and it's just, it, it's not, it's not going to go anywhere. And so I kind of like, I can't, it, 
I recognize professionally that this game needs a fresh start and someone who worked on this for so long, for several years, can't be the person who necessarily offers us a fresh start. It has to be someone coming in with fresh ideas. Editions like Gehenna are cyclical, and so when Vampire Eighth right. Edition rolls around, I'll I'll have my day. It, I'll awesome have my day not in the sun once I again. Know, I, I, I know we have to wrap up, but in terms of cyclical Gehenna, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen. But I believe that was born from a Neil and Matthew discussion because uh, you. I think Eddie, your uh, your initial brief was that essentially it was a false Gehenna. And right. we, through development of the text, mm-hmm. basically inserted artifacts, elders referencing it. I think Vasantasina mentions it. Uh, you basically have characters who are a little in the know starting to say, well, yes, it was Gehenna. Gehenna did happen for somebody, you know, for some clan yeah. or some some vampires, just as it did in 1444 to the Cappadocians, just as it did 400 years before that to the Salubri. Um, so, so really interestingly, um, I remember having a lightning bolt hit me during our conversation uh, with that about how to tie it more deeply into the mythology of the setting and more deeply into there. There is a one-off line in um, Clan Book Toreador Revised uh, where a Toreador is briefing an, an old Toreador elder and like basically bringing her back up to speed on, on the world. And the elder is like, well, what generation are you? And... Um, She's like, uh, I'm I'm tenth generation is you know the, the the more modern character, and the elders sputters and are like, I'm I'm surprised you can even sire at all. I'm surprised you were even sired at all. Has the blood really gotten that weak? And that that stuck with me because I was like, well, clearly like that's still fairly powerful by vampire standards. Um, the baseline is thirteenth if you have no dots in generation. Um, but then when you look at Dark Ages, you see that everyone moves a generation before, but the the thin-blooded flaw can still be applied to 13th generation vampires, but it isn't there in the modern day. And I was like, what if what if the blood has become more attenuated over time? What if the progenitors have been growing as the progenitors grow stronger? What if um, the 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 ceiling for thin-bloodedness keep, continues to drop? And that led into the development of the yeah. 16th generation in Beckett's and that led into the idea of this cyclical Gehenna. There are cycles where the ceiling will, the, the, the ceiling will drop in terms of generation and the bar keeps getting lowered. And so the curse of Cain gets thinner and more stretched out, but it never yeah. goes away. And, and, and I think you're, I think you'll find those two characters were Carmelita Nielsen and Catherine de, de Montpellier uh, in, in Clan Victoria. Oh, uh, well, wow, wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I, I, I do remember some of that conversation because I remember, I think you guys floated it by me at one point. And because, because I remember being struck by the comparison of how um, throughout history, people would point to various horrible events and say, oh, this is the apocalypse from the Bible. Um, and so I thought it was a cool way to kind of tie into that biblical tone that Vampire the Masquerade always had of the, well, Gehenna, yeah. Yes, the Book of Nun talks about Gehenna as singular events, but at the time the, the book was being written, they didn't realize it was cyclical. And so, you know, my initial idea was maybe these were all false Gehennas, but then you guys mentioned this thing like, that works even better because then it's the, yes, these are all Gehenna. These are all true, which means Gehenna will come again, which means you, on top of that, we don't lose that kind of fear of what's going to happen again, but it's not, everything's going to 
die. It's going to be the, we don't know what's going to happen on the other side of this. Uh, uh, so I know I do know we have to wrap up in a minute, but uh, there's something I want to say that I've never said on a podcast interview or anything like that before, and it's about the Book of Nod. And Book of Nod, for all of it's lovely, and how you can use it however you like in your games, is not a an actual... <laughs> Um, well, I guess canonically accurate tome where every single word of it is to be taken literally. A yes. little like you know, a little like the Bible or any other holy reference text. Uh, there's a lot of metaphor in there. There's a lot of parable. Mm-hmm. Um, but most importantly, it is just one set of vampires' interpretation of their origins and their fate. And one of the Mm. things I particularly like about the Book of Nod, I don't know whether it stays in to the newest version by Renegade, um, but I like it because it is an error. It's an error by White Wolf, who published it originally. It's an Mm. error in the text, uh, is the reference to the Clan of Death as the Giovanni. The Mm. reason I like that is because what it shows, if you take it as canonical, is much like the King James Bible, this is a revision. This is a rewrite. Someone Mm -hmm. has come in here at some point and updated terms. And Mm -hmm. the reason White Wolf wrote it like that was because the Cappadocians didn't exist on paper when the Giovanni were first created for Vampire the Masquerade. But if you're a a vampire reading it, you can see this word Giovanni. And if you're a vampire historian, you can think, well, hang on, that doesn't actually hold up you know this isn't some ancient tome this is some rewritten tome and just as we know through actual holy text in our world with every revision comes subtle sometimes subtle sometimes major changes and that for me is what makes the book of nod interesting as an artifact but also what makes it as accurate as you want it to be Mm -hmm. and the less accurate it is i think the more interesting it is great I, and I do want to point people to the um, uh, the two lesser known uh, Book of Nod companions, uh, Revelations of the Dark Mother, which takes things mm-hmm. from Lilith's point of view, and that of the Bihari, and the Air Saiz fragments, which is much more of an ancient text yeah. feel, uh, and and gives a gives a a much clearer view of oh this there there was a lot of stuff happening behind and, the scenes and here, and there have the rights of the dragon. <laughs> And the Testament of Longinus for Requiem uh, are lesser known, I guess, among Masquerade fans because they're for Requiem First Edition, but they are fantastic. They are books Mm -hmm. that, with the benefit of all that design knowledge that went into the Book of Nod, Revelations, Erkes, Fragments, these books are fantastic in-world documents that are nebulous enough but filled with so many story hooks for... Characters, whether you're in the Ordo Dracul or the Lancaire at Sanctum or not, they're just wonderful books. And I, I don't know if you can download them from Drive Through RPG. I'd be surprised if you can't. But if you can find an original version of either of them, especially the uh, Rights of the Dragon, I think it's called. Um, mm. Yes, it's Rights of the Dragon. I've got it. Uh, it's pr- quite hard to find, I suspect, with the, uh, the the gilding still on the front cover. Uh, because it peeled off quite easily, but it's a very, very nice book to hold. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned uh, Testament Longinus because uh, related to that, there's also an error in Testament Longinus because uh, I developed that book. Um, and I realized after it was all done, um, it was printed, it was out there, that um, one of the 
because uh, the numbering skips a number because one of the lines got just fell off during layout and I never caught it. Uh, but it was, oh, of course, in fancy media, Jim, I was like, well, where's this missing uh, uh, paragraph? And because it was written to be uh, a, a document that was unreliable because they even had footnotes from different scholars arguing veracity of each point, um, players immediately said, okay, this must be intentional. And so I was like, yes, that was totally intentional. Uh, and then when I worked on the Lenkette at Sanctum stuff for Rose for Requiem Second Edition, I, I referenced that and that became a plot hook for one of the stories of like, you know, someone has found the missing tenant and, and what that relates to. So you're right. I agree that that flawed documents are, are, are a great way to get story ideas. And I suppose now that I say it, maybe that's a good summation of V20 as an edition. It was it was. It, it doesn't fit well in everything else, but that's okay. And I think it's maybe one of the reasons why people thought V20 was such a intriguing uh, note of vampire history was because it played more towards what people remembered of Vampire the Masquerade than the Vampire the Masquerade that actually existed, which is really all I wanted it to do. On that note, um, uh, we are getting low on time, as Matthew said a couple times now, so we will wrap things up. Uh, Neil, if people wanted to ask you questions about the Salubri, where would they find you online? <laughs> Um, I'm in the various vampire discords, uh, and on, um, Twitter as at burnt Neil, B-U-R-N-T-N-E-A-L-L. It's a reference to the saga of burnt Yal, which is an ancient Icelandic saga. Uh, but I, it's been a long time since I've actually made the connection. Nobody <laughs> ever gets the connection and I'm tired of explaining it. But at this point, I'm too deeply invested in the name to actually diverge my, the best myself of it. So Fair there enough. we go. How about you, Matthew? Uh, I don't have nearly as interesting an origin story for my Twitter handle of Dawkins MP. I'm not a member of Parliament, thank God. Uh, but you can <laughs> find me on Matthew Dawkins. Although if I was right now, I would certainly be making a lot of noise against our Prime Minister to make things political for a moment. Uh, you can yes. find me on MatthewDawkins.com. Other than that, and you can also find me on the Onyx Path Discord. And uh, I'm just going to take a brief moment to say that if you're interested in creating media for Onyx Path, uh, so for instance, actual plays interviews, deep dives, character creation sessions, whatever, whether it's in podcast form, blog, uh, video, on Twitch, do get in touch with me. Uh, we post the creator form on every Tuesday on the media blog, but if you don't want to check that out, go to matthewdawkins.com and drop me an email, and I can set you up with whatever it is you need. And you can find me uh, on Twitter at Pugsteady, P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. You can find me on my website at Pugsteady.com. And like Matthew said, you can find all of us uh, on the, the Alex Path Discord, um, usually hanging out. Um, and other than that, it, it's been cool to talk about this stuff again. Um, it's, it, it has reached a point where um, it's now history. And so it's kind of kind of fun to reflect back on on this this interesting little moments of Vampire the Masquerade history. So thank you both for coming on board and talking about that. Yeah. Thank you for having and us. And as always, many worlds, one bad person.